Do you live in an awareness that God watches over his people? We would say that we believe that God is everywhere. We would say that we believe that God cares for his people. But does that knowledge affect us in our everyday lives? Sometimes it's really basic things. Like I was uh, traveling home yesterday. I got stuck in a traffic jam on basically every freeway I got on. Sometimes we think circumstances like that catch God by surprise because they catch us by surprise. When more significant things come up, unexpectedly some friendship that you've had for a long time, suddenly there's a, a rift or a, decision, a, a dissension in that relationship, do we think that it catches God by surprise or that he's unable to work in that circumstance? when um, when things are a question of life and death as they were for Paul, hopefully we have more of an awareness in those circumstances that God watches over his people, but there are still times when we doubt that God sees us and knows us and is working in those circumstances. In Paul's life, he's come to a point where he's giving a further defense of his ministry before the Sanhedrin, and he, he knows well their attitude toward him, and so there is perhaps a temptation to forget that God is watching, that God is not merely watching, but watching over him, and allow that to affect the way that he speaks. But we see in this chapter, all throughout, God is present, God is protecting, and God is accomplishing his purpose. This passage really starts with the last verse of chapter 22 where it says, But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he, that is Paul, had been accused by the Jews, he, the Roman official, released Paul and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. So you'll recall, Paul gives this defense before the Jews. Originally, there's sort of a case of mistaken identity from the perspective of the Romans. They think that he's a rabble-rouser come up from Egypt but he is in fact not, and so it seems that the Roman commander assumes, well, if I let him speak to the people, perhaps he can clear things up, we can disperse the mob, and everything will calm down. But in reality, as soon as Paul mentions his ministry to the Gentiles, the Jews basically say, let's get rid of him, he doesn't deserve to live. And so the Roman commander uh, takes him away, the centurion, and says, uh, All right, let's beat the truth out of him. And then Paul, of course, raises the issue of his Roman citizenship. But there's still sort of this, this, this feeling of we want to know what's going on. And so it would seem that perhaps they're putting Paul in danger by having him continually go before the people who were seeking to kill him earlier in previous chapters. And yet I think that there is a sense in which the Roman officials, not understanding all the context... They're trying to 
uh, provide an opportunity to understand the circumstance and to determine what would be the just course of action in the midst of what's going on here. And so that seems to be the background of what we see in verse 30, that the Sanhedrin is summoned and Paul goes before them with, it seems, uh, Roman guards standing by in case there's any kind of an uproar because we see them stepping in uh, in verse 10 and with perhaps an interpreter ready to relay to the Roman official what is being said so because he seems to have an awareness of what is being said later in the chapter. So Paul looks intently at the council. I, I want to call your attention to that phrase that he looked intently at the council because We've seen this phrase before earlier in the book of Acts. We see in chapter 7, in verse 55, Stephen is gazing intently into heaven in the midst of his own defense. I think Luke uses that word again because he wants us to recall what happened with Stephen and the potential of that same kind of thing happening to Paul, the one who was standing by at the, at the stoning of Stephen. But Paul looks intently at the council, the Sanhedrin, and says, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. For Paul, and you'll recall this from our study of conscience, Paul was concerned that his conscience would be clear before God. And in order for his conscience to be clear before God... He needed to fulfill the task that God had assigned to him. What was that task? It was stewardship of taking the gospel to the Gentiles and stewardship of the mystery of the gospel, which was the Gentiles were part of God's church and on equal standing with Jews in the church as they both gathered together before God. And so if Paul had faithfully done that, taken the gospel message and explained the gospel mystery both of which God had entrusted to him, then he could stand before them with a clear conscience. It seems strange to us, perhaps, that the immediate response is that he would be struck on the mouth in verse 2. You might ask yourself, why would they strike him on the mouth just when he's barely said anything at all? I think the answer is this. If Paul has a good conscience and they are accusing Paul, they don't have a clear conscience before God. They are in the wrong, and they didn't want to hear that, and so they strike him on the mouth. Paul's response, some have seen as an outburst of anger and some as an outburst of righteous indignation. Regardless of the way that you view what he says, the implication is clear. Here are those who stand in their own righteousness, much as Jesus accused them of doing, stand in their own righteousness saying, look at us. We follow the law. We are the teachers of the people. And yet they stand there with their hearts full of sin. Contrary to the law, they strike Paul without having heard his defense. Contrary to the law, they are going to accuse him of blasphemy when they themselves are the ones who have spoken against God by both their lives and their actions. And their primary concern is respect 
for the office rather than that the person who occupies the office is actually one who deserves to be sitting there as the high priest. Which perhaps connects with what Paul says in verse 5. Paul says, I, am not, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This poses some challenges. Why would Paul say, I didn't know he was the high priest? There's a number of possibilities, including that he actually had no idea who the high priest was, but he had been in frequent enough contact with Jerusalem that that was probably unlikely. It would not be surprising, and this is one of the more likely options, that Paul was essentially saying, I did not know that he was the high priest because he was not behaving as such. And yet God's law, and if I'm going to follow that, says, don't speak evil of a rule of your people. So having made his point, you are living wickedly, he subsides and says, I, sh I should not speak evil of the one who is in the office, though he does not deserve to, to be in that office. The next section creates some further difficulties for us. What is Paul's purpose in crying out that he is a Pharisee in the midst of a mixed audience of Pharisees and Sadducees? Some people look at it as sort of this really clever ploy. He knows that there's disagreements among them, and so he's just sort of trying to get in the fight amongst themselves so that he can slip out the back door. I think there's something more going on here. Think back to Paul's speech in Athens in Acts 17. What does he latch on to? How does he approach his presentation of the gospel to his audience? He approaches it in this way. I see that you're very religious. Let me tell you about the one true God. It seems as though Paul knows that there is some agreement about the concept of a resurrection from the dead. The point of disagreement among the Pharisees is whether Jesus actually was raised from the dead and whether he was the one to trust in, not whether resurrection from the dead was possible. And so I think Paul, by this simple statement, is showing awareness of his audience and forcing them to a point of decision, saying essentially, are you going to believe the things that I've been saying, or are you going to continue to reject them? And at the same time, saying to the Sadducees, essentially, you've been wrong about this. How do we know that there's a disagreement among them? It says in verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. What was the specific thing that the Sadducees did not believe in? They did not seem to have a concept in their belief system of a bodily resurrection the same way that the Pharisees did. And yet there seems to be, at least in the ancient literature, from what I'm aware of, that they did have a concept of angels and, and spirits of some kind. So why would Luke say here that they didn't? And I think that probably the best explanation goes back to Paul's defense in chapter 22, which was that... He heard a voice from heaven, and the angelic vision, in their minds, this vision was sort of the thing that changed the course of his life and set him on his ministry. So the thing that I think that Luke is highlighting that the Sadducees would deny 
is that Paul had any such experience. They would not necessarily deny that angels existed. They would deny that they would speak to men. Now, obviously, Paul was asserting that it was Christ that spoke to him, but you could understand if they didn't believe that Christ was the risen Lord, why they would assume it was an angel instead. And so the Pharisees are standing over here, having some concept of a resurrection, and at least allowing the possibility that he had seen something from God. The Sadducees stand over here, being more materialistic and interested in, in political ploys and, and, and earthly things, more than some of the theological bent of the Pharisees. And they stand over here saying, we don't really have a category for bodily resurrection from the dead, and we don't really think that spirits speak to people. Both of them were wrong. Both of them had to be confronted with the truth that the thing that Paul had been proclaiming and the question that needed to be decided was, is there a resurrection from the dead? Was Jesus raised? Will you believe in him? When I asked if you have an awareness of God's watching over you, put yourself in Paul's place. You're standing before people who you know very well want to see you dead. Is your main goal to be freed, to be safe, or to fulfill the opportunity for ministry that you have to present the truth for them, possibly for the last time, either because you end up dead or because they reject it once again? Paul, in this passage did not put his first priority on his personal safety. And certainly, I'm sure he was aware, the Roman guards were standing there watching, they could step in, but there's at least the possibility that they would beat him to death before the guards could get to him, right? And so his life was very much on the line, and yet he had awareness that God was watching over him, that God was going to fulfill his promise that he would testify for Christ before kings and rulers, that his goal and his uh, purpose would be fulfilled in, in bringing the gospel to Rome. Christ reassures him of that in just a few more verses, but Paul had a sense of that even going into the situation. And so when it comes to opportunities to present the gospel, again, this is a historical situation. You and I aren't going to stand before the Sanhedrin. Our lives are likely not going to be on the line when we present the gospel. Do you know the people that you have the opportunity to present the gospel to? And do you present it in such a way that you are most concerned about them hearing the truth and least concerned about the personal harm or loss or detriment that comes to you? Well, what does this look like? It looks like maybe you meet someone who's a Hindu and you have some concept of Hinduism from a world religions textbook. Don't assume that you know how that particular person practices it because of something that you did in college over here or some book that you've read. Talk to that person, ask them questions, find out what they believe so that you can take God's word and say, here are the things that you believe, here is what God says. Because there may be the person who is a Hindu or a Roman Catholic or a Jehovah's Witness or whatever else and they don't follow the official thing that you would read in the textbook. Their religion basically boils down to, I do whatever I want, but every once in a while I'll do these things to sort of cover my bases. Well, that person is not devout. You're not going after that specific aspect of their religious practice. You're just saying, you know what? 
you're not even committed to this. How can you trust in, in, in it saving you? You need to be trusting in Jesus or something along those lines. Do you know the people that you're speaking the gospel to? Or do we just make assumptions about them? Here's how all these people... Not, people who don't know God are at the same time both very different and very much the same. They're very different because everyone has their own little quirks of what they think about life. They're very much the same because everyone has a conscience that tells them that there is a God. Everyone has an awareness that God made the world even though they seek to deny it. Those are your allies as you present the truth to them. But find out what it is they actually believe or say they believe so that you can bring Scripture alongside it and say, here's what God says. Do you know the people that you're taking the gospel to? And then when it comes to the actual presentation of the gospel, here are the things that go through our minds. If I speak the gospel, I will not get invited to family gatherings at Thanksgiving and Christmas and those sorts of things. I will no longer be able to have barbecues with this person in my backyard because they won't want to talk to me anymore. I will no longer be able to get a discount at this store because I don't have this friendship with this person. We start, Satan brings up all these things in our mind that here are the things that will be lost to me personally if I speak the truth of God to this person. We have to ask ourselves, what is more important? Personal benefit, whether it be safety or security or ease of, of, of relating to people around us, is that more important or is them knowing the truth more important? I'm not saying be hateful. I'm not saying be careless in the way that we do it. But we have to say, when it comes down to it, what is most important? What God has said and them acknowledging it. And again, sometimes we, we look at it like, here's a track. You could take it up or you could leave it. It's okay. No, no big deal. Second Thessalonians says, those who do not obey the gospel will be punished by God eternally. There is an obligation, according to Acts 17, when Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, you don't have to do the fire and brimstone standing on the street corner, picketing with the sign thing to communicate to someone and say, this is urgent. God requires this of you. And you can say no, but here's the result of it. And we want to try to hide some of those things. We want to try to say, believe in Jesus and your life will be better. Believe in Jesus and we hide the part about, as someone was saying this weekend, we hide the part about, and you're not going to have a Sunday morning for the rest of your life to sleep in. And say, well, how is that a big deal? We need to be upfront with people. If you follow God, He requires certain things of you, like gathering with His people, like following what He says, like living for Him when you would rather do this thing instead because of our, our, old, our old self. Do we try to cover those things up? And so sometimes we don't speak because we worry about what will happen to us and sometimes we don't speak clearly because we don't want to like make it less likely for them to believe. So, do you know the people that you're speaking to? Do you love them enough to speak the truth to them? And do you disregard the personal negative effects 
of having spoken the truth. That's, I think, the example that Paul sets for us. And I think um, we, we know the, the, the next few verses. There's this, there's this uproar. The Romans intervene. But, but notice verse 9. Notice the impact of what he said. Some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. We don't have evidence that they actually believed in Christ, but there is at least evidence that they're thinking seriously about it. And Luke is going to make the point here, as well as at the end of the chapter, that Paul has done nothing wrong. Sometimes that's part of our concern. We're concerned about what is someone else's opinion of us. Whose is the opinion that matters? It's God's assessment of us, right? And God's assessment, both from the mouths of the Jews and from the mouths of the Gentiles, is Paul's done nothing wrong. He's fulfilled his mission. We see Christ appearing to Paul in verse 11. On the night immediately following, probably the night that came immediately after the events that were going forth here, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Isn't it interesting how God can provide encouragement at moments when we desperately need it? Elijah says, I'm the only one left. And God says, No, you're not. Paul's life has been threatened once again, and God says, I'm not promising it'll be easy, but you're going to do the thing that you've set out to do. You've done it here. You're going to do it in Rome. What was Paul's reason, thinking back to those chapters where there were all the visions and prophecies and, and, and encouragement of fellow believers not to go down to Jerusalem, what was Paul's consistent response? I need to go and witness of Christ in Jerusalem. What does Jesus say had been accomplished? As you have solemnly witnessed. And that word solemnly links back to what Paul said in verse 21 of chapter 20, solemnly testifying to Jews and Greeks. The Holy Spirit, verse 23, solemnly testifies to me. He was, saw it as a sober, a solemn, a sacred task. And he did it. And God was going to see that he accomplished it in Rome as well. And we have this fascinating story in the middle of the chapter. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy under oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, and we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. There's a couple of stories that come to mind in connection with this. One is, or passages of scripture, one is the, the rash vow of Jephthah that we looked at in Sunday school. Another is the actions of Ahab in accusing Naboth. Another is Ecclesiastes 5 where it talks about making vows before God. And another is the story of uh, Jonathan where his father said, if anyone does this, then he's cursed if anyone eats before we've finished our battle against the Philistines. So we take all of these biblical concepts together. We have people 
who have made a promise before God, sort of the idea of may God strike me dead if I don't, if I, or if I do, if I eat or drink before I've killed Paul. <laughs> Let's think about this. These are people who purport to uphold the law. They're claiming, we are the ones who follow the law. And yet in two primary instances, they are not upholding the law. They are going to lie to the Romans, and they are going to commit murder. Jesus had already made comments on those who think that lying is a good thing relative to they're like your father the devil. And the hatred that Jesus spoke of that leads to murder is very much in force in this passage. They hated Paul. They wanted to see him stopped, and they were willing to go to any length. So we have people who say, we uphold the law, who are going to lie, and who are going to murder because they think that God can't accomplish justice on blasphemers himself. Despite the fact that Isaiah got struck dead when he touched the Ark of the Covenant going on the cart, despite the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead when they lied to the Holy Spirit, despite all of these things that they probably were aware of, they thought, yes, let's, let's lie and murder and get rid of Paul. And their pretext is, we want to examine his case by a more thorough investigation because they know the Romans want to get the bottom of what's going on, and so let's sort of play into that and get them to, to lead Paul into this ambush. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And then the, the story is repeated. Verse 21, do not listen to them, for more than forty are lying in wait, have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him, and now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. We have again this question of whether God is going to fulfill his word. Jesus said, you're going to stand before those in Rome and testify of me. This plot of the Jews threatens to undo that, because if Paul is dead, clearly he can't do that. You have to wonder how Paul's nephew hears about this plot. We don't know his name. We don't know how old he was. We don't know anything about him. All we know is God put him in the right place at the right time, so he heard what was going on, came and told Paul. Paul told the Roman commander, and God preserved Paul's life. And so again... When we come to circumstances and opportunities in which we can present the truth, sometimes we are so concerned about what the next thing to happen is going to be. I'm not saying that there's going to be an, someone overhearing a plot against you when you give the gospel, but God clearly knows what's going on in this situation. God's clearly watching out for Paul. And that, I think, should give us confidence as well. Verse 23, the commander called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him 
having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. The chapter starts out with Paul starting to give the defense and, and with seeking to make a further attempt at the hearts of these who were so blind to the truth. There's the question of whether God was going to look after him, and God does. And both by the mouths of the Jews and by the mouths of the Romans, there is agreement. He doesn't deserve death. God's assessment of Paul was in direct opposition to the Jews' assessment of Paul in the earlier chapters where they said, away with such a fellow, he's not fit to live. And God says, no, he's done nothing deserving of death. I would highlight for you again the parallels that I think that Luke is drawing between the life of Christ and the life of Paul. Not that Paul's death would accomplish salvation for the world or anything along those lines, but rather the the course of Paul's ministry and the course of Jesus' ministry, the opposition of the same groups of people, and the assessment of those who are standing by, there's remarkable correspondence between those, those two stories. And I say stories as in narratives, not as though they're made up. They're real. They're historical accounts. There is also that question of was God with the one who was so accused? Was God with Jesus? Yes, <laughs> in a number of ways that are difficult for us to comprehend. Was God with Paul? Yes. God watches over his people, and that ought to give us confidence to do what he's called us to do. In at least two ways. One is, in the way that we live our lives. And this is not primarily the point of this text, but I think it's an important thing to point out. If God watches over us as his people, has an awareness of every aspect of our lives, he knows what we do. We can hide sin from everyone around us, but we can't hide it from him. And he has said in passages like Hebrews 12 and in passages like Ephesians 2 that he has called us to walk in holiness and that he is willing to go to great lengths to accomplish that holiness. And so I don't say that to scare you, but rather just as a, as a, as a clear and specific reminder God knows what's going on in your life. So if there is some way in which you are not following him, God's awareness of and working in your life works both ways, both as an encouragement 
and as a rebuke. And when it comes to the other thing, which I think is the main point of this passage, the taking of God's word to people who need to hear God's word, the fact that God is watching over and is aware of and is working in every circumstance ought to give us confidence. Because if it's up to me, or if I'm on my own, that creates a whole lot of fear and doubt and hesitation when it comes to speaking the truth. But knowing that God has the power to intervene, knowing that it's God's message that's being presented, not mine, all of these things come together and say, do it. And so all of the excuses that we come up with in our minds, they have no weight compared to the fact of God's presence, God's commission, giving God's message. So this week, when you see someone who doesn't know God and you have an opportunity to speak the gospel to them, will you do it? If you're hesitant, remember the example of Paul. Paul was risking death to do it. What are you risking? Remember that God watches over his people and let that affect the way that you live this week. Let's pray. Lord, we see the truth of your word. Lord, I'll confess those things about this story that I still don't fully understand, and yet I hope, Lord, that I have accurately communicated the truth of the text. Help us to follow Paul's example to the extent that he was seeking to proclaim your word in every circumstance, and that it seems that he had a confidence and awareness that you were watching over him. And he didn't have the benefit of seeing some of the things that we see because we get to see all the behind-the-scenes details, and that's how our lives are, too. We don't know what's going to happen next. We're not reading the story after the fact. But if you have given us a job to do, if you are the sort of God that you are, we can be confident that you will be at work as we faithfully follow you. So, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to do that this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.